You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. It is great to be with you all this morning. My name is Pastor Mark, one of the pastors here. Welcome. We are so glad that you have come to worship and to pray and to study God's word and to take communion together. That is a privilege and a blessing. This morning, let us pray and then we will dive into the book of Titus. God, you are so good, Lord, and we praise you. We praise you as a God who is majestic, a God who is light, a God who is justice and peace and love. God, we praise you as a God who's transcendent and yet imminent. Lord, we're so grateful for you and we worship you this morning. God, I confess um, that I am a broken and sinful man. God, that so often I fail um, to put you on the throne of my life, to put you first in my life, God. Um, And I I confess that, God, I am broken. I am sorry. Would you help me, Lord, in that? Would you help all of us in that? God, we want to um, live out what we sang. God, would you help to teach our hearts that you really are enough for us? God, that you would be enough above everything else in our life. Lord, our hearts are so prone to want other things. Would you help us? Always remind us that there's nothing greater than you. And God, would we need you desperately every single day? Would we live like that? Would we worship like that? Would we read like that? Would we pray like that? God, that we need you every single day. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, let's dive into Titus. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2. This morning we are continuing our three-part series on the book of Titus living as the church. So let's read it together. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, Working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
And so we're going to do our best this morning to work our way through the text. But you guys know this, we can't cover everything. Um, if you guys had a nickel for every time that I said, I wish I had more time to tell you things, um, you would all be rich. Uh, but last week, we spent a lot of time looking and talking to the men um, with a lot of principles that were transferable to our women. And so this week, we're going to do the reverse of that, and we're going to spend um, more time in the text um, talking to our ladies. Um, but let's start where the text starts, and it starts with older men are to be. What do we see that older men are to be. The first thing we see is that older men are to be sober-minded. If you translate um, sober-minded, it, it literally means free from intoxicating influences. That's what it means to be sober-minded. And yet in 1 Peter 1.13, we get a greater um, understanding of what uh, being sober-minded means spiritually. In 1 Peter chapter 1, um, he writes this, being sober-minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So according to Peter, what does it mean to live with a single, to be sober-minded? It means to live with a single-minded focus. And what's the focus? The focus is eternity, right? The focus is God. So a man who's sober-minded is someone who fixes his eyes on eternity, fixes his eyes on God instead of becoming entangled with intoxicating influences. Next, we see the word dignified. And again, we could talk, do whole sermons on each one of these words. But when you think of dignified, what do you think of? What do you think of when you think of dignified? One of the things that I think of when I think of dignified is I think of honorable, right? Someone who's dignified um, is honorable. They're worthy of honor. And what does honorable look like in the church, right? I think one of the things that honorable looks like in the church is spiritually healthy, spiritually growing, right? These are the men that I find to be honorable and dignified in the church, men that I look up to and strive to learn from. We also see self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And I want to commend those of you men who are sound in love, because it's very obvious to tell who you are. The younger men gravitate to you, the teens gravitate to you, the children gravitate to you because you're sound in love. And so if you see this happening in your life, I would say be encouraged in that. We move on in the text and we see that older women are to be. And the first thing that it says is what? Likewise, reverent in behavior. And so that sounds a little bit different in English, but it's basically the same connotation. It's the same sort of thing that he's trying to get across as the men, that they are also to be dignified, honorable, spiritually healthy. And then we see next, not slanderers. I would encourage you, plead with you ladies, to watch your tongue. I sat on the subway yesterday with Jackson coming home from a Blue Jays game, and I listened to two ladies talk for 45 minutes, just slandering half the people in their life. It was painful to listen to. So I plead with you, please watch your tongues. Don't gossip. Right, you hear the age-old saying, uh, would you say that thing that you're saying in front of the other person? It's a good question. I think there's a better question. Here's the question. Would, God, would that honor God if you did? Would that honor God if you said that thing, rather whether you said it to them or not? Right? Would that honor God if you did? And then next we see that they are to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children. And so we're going to start with the first part, that they are to teach what is good. And what does that look like? That gives us a second to talk about discipleship, right? And when we talk about discipleship, 
A good place to start is always in Matthew 28, right, where it says, there, go, um, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think very simply we see here in this text that discipleship is teaching people how to follow God, right? It's pointing people to God. And we saw last week in Titus, what are the elders supposed to do? One of the jobs of the elders is that they're to be able to teach, right? So when we come together as a church, when we open God's word together, part of the reason we've structured this in this way is because we're trying to be obedient to this. What are we doing when we do this? We're doing discipleship, right? Part of the goal is that we would teach you to observe all that God has commanded us as Christians. That's part of the goal here when we gather as believers. When we gather as believers, we also, um, we pray, right? And we worship through song and we serve our community together. When we engage in real meaningful relationships and care for each other spiritually, practically, what are we doing? We're doing modeling. We're doing teaching of all the different things that God's called us to do teaching us to observe all that he's commanded us, what are we doing? We're doing discipleship together. So I must value getting together in the church. But we don't just do discipleship in big gatherings, do we? We also live it out in groups, right? And we live it out one-on-one. And one of my greatest joys as a pastor is just to hear when people meet together simply to open God's word together or to simply pray together. That is one of the things that thrills my soul. They don't need another program, they just want to get together and open God's word together. That's a beautiful thing. So when we're discipling, we're teaching people to follow God, right? And that's what Titus is calling the older women here to do for the younger ladies. And so let's look at this a little bit. What do you need to be in order to disciple someone? So let's look at some qualifications for discipleship. I want you to notice this list. The bar's low. Number one, you're a Christian, right? You need to be a Christian to disciple someone. Why? Because you can't teach someone to strive towards something that you're not already striving towards, right? But notice that we didn't say perfectly, right? So many people get hung up on, I can't disciple because I'm going to screw it up. I can't do it perfectly. You're not called to do it perfectly. Are you striving towards Christ? Number two, you're growing in the Lord, right? Remember last week, what did we talk about? That the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. If that's happening in your life, if your knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of who God is, the knowledge of the gospel is growing in godliness in your life, then you are meeting a qualification to be a discipler. Number three, you're humble, right? Disciples, they're the opposite of trying to convey perfection, right? You're teaching through your own failure, right? You're willing to say, I don't know, right? That shows you're gospel-centered, Right? The people that I'm scared about aren't the people that don't know everything. The people that I'm scared to watch other people disciple is the people that think they know everything and won't admit when they're wrong, so they make something up. That's scary. Not knowing everything, that's not scary. Nobody knows everything. Right? Number four, you have multi-generational friendships. Right? I think older ladies, this one is staring you at the face in the face in the text, isn't it? In order to be a discipler, of younger women, you need to first do what? You need to first know younger women. Do you have relationships with our younger women so that you can actually disciple them? And number five, you understand this isn't optional, 
right? Discipleship isn't optional in the church, right? It's not something that only people with five PhDs get to do and everybody else sits back, right? And so what I want you to see here is that I think in our heads, we've set the bar way too high, right? And yet in the church, what God's calling, what is, what's he looking for? He's looking for obedient people. He's looking for faithful people. He's looking for humble people who are Christians. That's what he's looking for in discipleship. And so practically, let's talk about a few practical tips for discipleship. And before we get there, I just want to say this. My hope and my prayer is that you would look at the truth in God's word that we just looked at. And if you're not discipling someone, that you would want to be obedient and start. And not because you're guilted by me or any of the elders who are up here. My prayer for you is this. We pray this in the back. I've been praying it all week. I want the Holy Spirit to open up your eyes to how amazing and magnificent it is to disciple someone. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. It's wonderful. It's not something to be done out of guilt. It's a great joy and privilege. And those of you who are doing it, you can nod and agree because you know that it's true. But practically, let's look at a few things. Number one, how to create multi-generational friendships few things I would encourage you ladies to do. Um, first one, come out to our women's nights, right? Starting again in the fall, they'll be starting up. Even if you feel like they're not for you, use that night to get to know women that you don't know, to build some of those multi-generational friendships. Um, I'm not allowed to show up at the women's nights, uh, but the men's nights, I get to show up to those. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to Keith McLaughlin. Many of you know Keith. Um, he's 82. He can't hear everything that's being said at these nights. You know, we get downstairs, it gets loud and boisterous, and sometimes it can be hard to hear. Um, in many ways, the night is not specifically designed for him, and yet he shows up for one purpose. He comes to build relationships with our younger men, and that's a really cool thing. Number two, I would encourage you in this, invite a younger woman out for coffee. Right? You don't need to have an 18-week Bible study plan all prepared and ready to go. Just invite her out for coffee and ask questions. Get to know her. Find out how you can pray for her. That's a great start. Number three, I would encourage you in this. Sit in a different place in the service. And I know this is hard. I know, I know. No, yes, this is really hard, right? I've been to university for seven years. I watched lecture halls with 300, 400, 500 people. They come in, first week you find a seat, and every week after that, the rest of the semester, you know what I'm talking about, those of you who've been at university, what happens? 500 people all go and sit in the exact same seat for the rest of the semester. It's human nature. But I want to encourage you, sit in a different spot. Because when you always sit in the same spot, which a lot of you are now, what happens? You sit with the same people, right? You're sitting with people that you know, um, but when you go and you out and you, you move around, you're going to sit with people that you don't know. And I would encourage you to do that so that you can talk with them after, right? Ladies, send your husbands down with a sticker to get the kids, right? And then just talk. Talk with the people around you. And then husbands, bring the kids back up. Don't piece off to the van. Come up and talk. It's a good thing to get to know people we don't know. And last one, invite a family over for a meal. And just remember that it doesn't have to be extravagant, right? Order pizza. Um, I also know that Daryl McCullough is not a woman, uh, but Daryl has a good strategy that I wanted to share with you. He came up to us one Sunday and he said, I want to hang out with you guys um, because I love you, 
And so I'll buy pizza, and you can come to my house, or if it's easier with the kids because they got all their toys at your house, you stay at your house, and I'll bring the pizza, right? What a beautiful, great, simple strategy to build multi-generational friendships. Really appreciated that in Daryl. Number two, how to start or ask for a discipling relationship. The start, right, for older ladies is start by having those multi-generational friendships. Start there, right? That's important. And then pray. Have those relationships and then pray. Pray both for who to come alongside and also to have the courage to actually do it because sometimes it can be hard, can't it? And practically, I would just start out very small, right? Start out with one time. And maybe it stays at one time, and that's okay. Or maybe it grows into something more. Um, and as far as asking goes, I'd encourage you in this, don't start by asking for a year-long discipleship. I pray that one day we would get really excited by that, that people would come up to us and say, hey, would you sit for a year with me and point me to God's word? That that would be beautiful. But right now, for a lot of people, as we're growing, that's overwhelming. And so I'd encourage you in this. Find someone, take the older woman out for coffee, just ask her, ask her for wisdom, ask her to pray for you, ask for those things, but just start small. Number three, expect discipleship to be messy. Aaron Davis says this, the young woman in your church who knows the Bible inside and out, fully understands God's plan for her life and follows him perfectly does not exist. If she did, she wouldn't need a mentor. Discipleship will always look like messy people pointing messy people towards a perfect savior. And I love that, right? Because that's the point of discipleship. You're pointing people towards God's word. You're pointing people towards God himself. So we looked at the first three. Now number four. Let's look at number four. Live the gospel. Here's what I mean by live the gospel. So the person that you're mentoring is going to fail you practically and spiritually, right? They're going to forget that about the time that you plan to meet at your house, right? Or they're going to make a last second change when you just spent all morning cleaning your house and then they're not going to show up, right? They're going to go out and do the very thing that you both sat there two weeks ago and said, we know that you, you got to not do this. They're going to go out and what they're going to do? They're going to do it, right? Why? Because we're all fallen and sinful people. They're going to go do the thing that you've been on your knees praying for them for weeks that they wouldn't do. They're going to go out and fail and do it anyways, Right? But remember, when this happens, I want you to remember this. When they fail, remember they're not failing you. They're failing God. But I want you to be reminded of how God deals with them when they fail. How God deals with us when we fail. What does he do? Right? He loves them more. Right? He holds them tighter. He reminds them of his compassion is greater Right? He holds his arms out wider to them and to you. So when the person you're discipling fails, this is an opportunity to live the gospel. Right? To show them love, to show them mercy, to show them grace. This might be the most powerful discipleship tool in your whole relationship. Is when they fail that you would emulate on earth what your Savior is thinking and doing in heaven. That's powerful. And number five, here's the last question, is obedience enough for you? One of the reasons that I think that many people don't disciple is because they think they're not going to be good at it, right? We've talked a little bit about that. But that's not very biblical thinking, is it? Because who's the one who changes hearts? It's God, 
What's your job as a disciple maker? To point people to God's word, right? To point people to the truth. It's not your job to motivate people. It's not your job to change people, right? The motivation in the Christian life is always God, the gospel, and God's glory. That's always the motivation for the things that we do. And any real change isn't produced in us. Who is it produced in? It's produced in the Holy Spirit. Remember all that stuff we did talking about fruit a while back, right? All that fruit, if it's produced in us, it's not good fruit. It's only good fruit if it's produced in the Holy Spirit. And so this should take the pressure off, shouldn't it? And so I return to that original question. Is obedience enough for you? Are you content with what God requires of you? Or if you go and disciple someone and they fall away or they don't grow, will you consider it a failure? Have you considered that God may actually ask you to disciple someone he knows is never going to grow for your growth alone? Or your humility alone? Or to know that obedience to your Savior alone will satisfy you? Or do you need to see results? Because if you need to see results, what would that expose in your own heart? Right? It exposes the pride in us, doesn't it? I want you to consider Jesus, right? The perfect discipler. What did Jesus do? He patiently and lovingly taught his disciples. And yet we know what happened, right? Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Thomas doubted him. And read the gospels, right? The disciples as a whole, they're regularly confused. They're regularly missing the mark. They regularly don't know what's going on, right? They constantly don't get it. Did Jesus fail in discipleship? No. Why? Because he did the will of the Father, right? Obedience was enough for Jesus. Is obedience enough for you? So we see in verse 4, we see that those two parts, right? They are to teach what is good, right? So older ladies, you are charged with discipleship. Younger ladies, there's someone who's always younger than you. So what are you charged with? Discipleship, right? That you would teach what is good. And you're able to teach what is good by that thing that we talked about last week, right? That your knowledge of the truth would accord in growing in godliness. If you do those things, then you are qualified to disciple. And then we see a lot of these things here after that is to live this out practically. And I want to show you a few things here from this list. The first is this, and this might sound familiar to last week. The majority of this list is what? The majority of this list is a woman's character, right? Some of these things are things that are lived out but they're lived out of character, right? We can so often read verse four and think that we need to teach younger women to sew and to cook and to clean. And those things are helpful, right? I'm not saying don't do those things. Those things are helpful. Those things are good. They can love their husbands in those ways. But that's a secondary truth, isn't it? What's the primary goal of that text? It says that they would love their husbands and love their children, right? And how does the Bible call us to love? Right? It's with the sacrificial love that Jesus showed for us. Right? That's the kind of love that we are called to. They're called to love their husband. And then practically that's going to play out differently. I also want you to notice in this text that the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write about a number of things that many women struggle with. Right? Many young women struggle to love their husbands. And older ladies, if you don't believe me, talk to some of them. Ask them. Some of them are, are struggling 
to love their husbands. And it's okay to struggle in the church. It's not okay to stay struggling, but it is okay to struggle, right? And some of our ladies, what's happening is they're inundated and surrounded by um, a very um, nasty culture on Instagram. If you go on Instagram, uh, what do you see? There's a whole culture on Instagram centered around wives to stain for their husbands, right? And it's staggering how much content is out there based on that. And here's the reality. Some husbands are pretty useless, aren't they? Right? Some husbands are useless, and they seemingly deserve some of this hate. But as Christians, we don't look at it that way, do we? Right? A useless husband is what? As Christians, how do we look at a useless husband? A useless husband is a gospel opportunity. That's what a useless husband is, right? It's a chance to show that glimmer of love that Christ showed you at the cross and continues to show you as you fail him all the time in the church. So as your useless husband fails you, remember those things. It's a gospel opportunity. And the same thing can be said for children, right? If you go on Instagram, you'll find that our ladies are inundated all the time with uh, this rampant mommy wine culture, right? And this is basically the idea that mothering is so hard and so challenging that they can't make it through without a significant amount of wine, right? We need wine at 9, 10 in the morning in order to make it through mothering every single day. That's a real thing that's out there, um, and it's, 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 it's attacking our younger ladies, And so older ladies, our younger ladies need you. They need your prayers. They need your kindness and steadfastness. And they need your godly advice, right? Because the world is not kind to them. We see self-controlled. Ladies, how controlled is your anger, right? How controlled is your anger? A lot of times um, our anger tells us a lot about our self-control. How well do you control your tongue? Those are the two things that I think we need to watch and be aware of. All right, and then here's a real good landmine, working at home. Uh, what does this mean? Um, I wish we had more time to talk about this in more detail, but we're going to do the best in the time that we have. Here's what I want you to know. Keeping a godly home for your husband or your children is a beautiful and non-negotiable part of a woman's calling. It's part of God's design for the family. Here's the flip side of this. This doesn't mean that women should not work outside the home, right? We see in Proverbs 31, um, that woman, she's, she's earning money for her family in addition to keeping her home. Where this becomes unwise and unbalanced is when a woman's job overtakes her priority of keeping a godly home. Uh, I got a quote from Jen Wilkin. Some of you know Jen Wilkin. She's a, a well-known, very brilliant Bible teacher, um, her story, in a nutshell, is this. She, for, she chose to forego her MBA uh, to stay at home with her children. That was her choice that she made. Um, and she writes these words. But I do regret this. In private, I was hard on mothers who worked outside the home. I thought they were selfish for not having made the choice that I had. I toil, told myself my choice was nobler, my workload more worthwhile. And it turned out there were plenty of people to agree with me. Though my coworkers greeted my decision to stay at home with uncomprehending stares, my church friends squealed with delight. It was, this as, it was as if I had finally ascended to the Christian ideal for womanhood, liberated from the fetters of feminism. Yes, our culture may devalue the role of stay-at-home women, but within the church we tend to do the opposite. We practically 
canonize her. And so we need to be balanced in our understanding of this discussion because many moms need to work, right? And Christians, I would encourage you to be mindful of this truth, especially in the day and age that we live in and the economic climate that we live in. The fact that some of us even have the opportunity to stay home marks us as children of socioeconomic privilege, even though I know that your choice to stay home was a real financial um, choice that impacted your family. And you're making real sacrifices in this way. In our own community, almost 25% of the people live below the poverty line. Many mothers must work. They don't have a choice. Some may also be called to work. One more quote from Jen. She says this, but what about uh, the working outside the home moms that I secretly despise, the mother who chooses to work? Just as we can be blind to our socioeconomic privilege, we can be dull in our understanding of calling. While the Bible prioritizes the home, it does not command women to work there exclusively. Can we acknowledge the possibility that some women are actually called to work outside the home? that they actually choose to work outside uh, on the conviction that their contributions in the workplaces are needful. We may think that their contributions inside the home must, also, must always command the majority of their time, but at what cost to our culture? If we were to remove the culture-shaping voices of Christian women from education, politics, medicine, law, media, boardrooms, and nonprofits, we may find that we have taken our point beyond where we intended it to go. I wonder if that positive influence may be missed in damaging ways. A mother's true enemies, selfishness and self-centeredness, no, no job description. When I left my career, I packed away my selfishness with my briefcase, only to find that it had taken up residence in my diaper bag. And so women, I just want to encourage you on both sides of this coin. I want to encourage you because I know some of you struggle with this. I want to encourage you to keep a loving, godly home because it is God's good plan that you would do this and you would pour energy and prayer and time into this. He has called you to this and it's part of his design in this way. But ladies, on the other side of the coin, I also want to encourage you in this. Let's have grace for each other as we live this out differently and let's grow together in these things. As we go down farther in the list, one of the other things that I love, we don't have time to talk about all of them, but one of them is we see it's kind. And do you remember that verse? It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. What are they called to do? You're called to be like Christ through your kindness, that kindness would lead us to repentance. And then we got more landmines to step on here. Um, submissive to your own husbands. And again, this is where I said, I wish we had more time. Uh, But here's two quick thoughts for you in this. Number one, submission is also part of God's design. We see that through scripture in a number of different categories, not just in in a male-female relationship in marriage. So that's number one. Submission is part of God's design. And number two, I want you to remember this. Remember how the home is a training ground for the church, right? And we looked at that last week, right? So just as God is asking wives to submit to imperfect husbands, right? Um, This practice for women to submit, um, it's really practice, right? It's practice for women to submit to the imperfect leadership 
of men in the church as elders because they're already practiced doing it at home. But it's not just practice, it's also training and modeling for the husbands as well, right? That as they see their wives submit to imperfect leadership well, their own imperfect leadership well, that they are encouraged to do the same for the elders in the church, which is God's design. And then we see here in the text, what's the purpose for all these things? What's the purpose for godly living, at least one of them? It's that the word of God may not be reviled. Right? The purpose of godly living is the glory of God, that they would see glimpses of God in you. And so I want to say a couple things now that we haven't been good enough at saying. The first one's this. Older men, older women, we want you and we need you desperately in the church. You are absolutely integral to the health of the church. If you left we would, we would not be happy. We, this would no longer be a good and healthy church. We all need each other. Yes, we've prayed for younger families. I also pray for more of you. And I pray for more of you who are willing to do the things that God is calling us to in the text. We need you and want you desperately. Because who does Paul address first when he addresses the body, right? You see the structure, right? Last week, he talked about the gospel. He talked about how we're to start with elders, set them up. Here's some work that the elders have to do. And then he starts talking about the church. And who does he address first? He addresses our older men and our older women. You are integral to the health of the church. And the second one is this, ladies, we also value you and we need you desperately. I think in general, complementarian churches have not been good enough at saying this and expressing this and working this out practically. And so I just ask you, have patience as we grow um, in these areas, but please know how much we value you and how much we need you. You are integral to the health of the church. Younger men and younger women are to be, right? If you look at the text, what do you see? There's to be growing in godliness Right? And where is the godliness? It's learned through the truth of the gospel, and then it's demonstrated in the lives of the Christians that have gone before them. Right? That they are to look, have older men, older women, that they can look to for these things. Right? These are things that we need to do as younger men and younger women. Here's the next one. The body is doing the work of discipleship. And I hope this is one of your primary takeaways of this text. Right? Because we just looked at the setup of the church, right? We got the elders first, and then he's going to talk to the body, right? He sets up leaders to lead, but then he expects everyone to do the work of discipleship. He expects everyone to live together in this way, to grow in godliness together for the purpose that others would be saved. And we'll look at that more in the future, right? He, notice the other thing he expects. He expects unity in the church, Right? One of the things I was struck with at the Blue Jays game yesterday is just it, sports are really amazing to have 40, 50,000 people come together for a common purpose and chant in unity and all get all dressed up and wear the same things. Right? There's, there's so much unity um, coming out of so much diversity, and yet it should be infinitely greater in the church, shouldn't it? Right? Our unity around Christ and what we have is way better than Vladimir Guerrero Jr., right? Christ is so much greater. Would we have that same unity in the body as we strive towards these things? And the last one that I want you to notice is this. 
And this, I wish we had time for a sermon, but the gospel is the motivation. But instead, I'll show you four things. Four things that we look at, because if you look at 11 through 15, that's, that's the gospel. What he's telling them is the gospel. So he started with the gospel, then he put it in, and then he's like making a big cheeseburger. And then again, he's got the gospel. There's more patties in there. For what's the grace? For the grace of God has appeared, right? The grace of God. And then notice what it says next. It says that the grace of God does what? It trains us, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's incredible, right? It's the gospel that compels us to live for God. But the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Scott Hubbard says this. He says, the no of self-control is... And he's talking about renouncing, right? Because renouncing is just saying no. The no of self-control is not the calm no of a wedding RSVP. No, it's the terrible no of self-denial, of refusing to gratify the inner beast that barks for satisfaction. Self-control can feel like severing an arm or tearing out an eye, which, of course, he's talking about what Jesus said in Matthew, right? And isn't that so true? One of the things that we didn't have more time to talk about, is if, if you go look through the text, look at how often, in all categories, self-control is brought up, right? Not everything's repeated. Self-control, I think, comes up three or four times if you look at it in the text. It's something that we are to do as a body, and we need the grace of God to do it. Because we can relate to this, can't we? I know I can, right? That inner beast, that barks for satisfaction inside me, right? Renouncing ungodliness is not just quick and easy. It's a fight. It takes work. Number two, uh, waiting for the blessed hope. I love this. I wish we could talk more about this. One of the things that we see in this text is that the Christian life is about waiting. The Christian life is about waiting. But we wait with a hope and with a purpose, Right, that we just saw in the text. So here's the question. Will you wait well? That's the question. Will you wait well as a Christian for this day? And then number three, we see a people for his own possession. Right, That we are gods. That was ordained by the Father, carried out by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. And so what do we see? Our identity is in him. Right? And we've got a lot of identity issues in our culture, don't we? And we can struggle with identity um, in us as well. Right? We can struggle so often looking to project different identities. Our identity is in Christ, a people for his own possession. What a beautiful and blessed hope. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.